Aloha, and welcome to Sup FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon. So this week, Simon, we've got... Um, wow, well, what can I say about Fiona yeah, Wilde? I mean, she yeah, she's is now 23 years old, and five years ago, she just jumped straight into the stand-up paddle scene. Anyone and who, um, did super, um, super, super well. And she has been doing it every single world. year. Last year, she came third uh, in the so APP World Tour. Anyway, she's done but, um, she won countless do that, um, titles in the past. I can't even rattle them off now because uh, there's too many of them. But um, we touch on a couple of the yeah, interesting we've, we've competitions up so during this podcast. We thought, well, hell, let's and try and get these things out. Because she's such a fun, vibey, young, happy person. And you can really get a sense of the lifestyle that she leads. Both you and I, I think, are amazed at cruising around the world, paddling, and having Friend with listening, friends listening, and listening, and enjoying really competitions and just, kicking off, just exactly. being stoked. Um, man. Momentum's just, really building, it's such a privilege for us uh, to be able to introduce you to her and, you know, and to hopefully inspire you to paddle more because you know, it's such an amazing lifestyle. If you tour, want to live a lifestyle but, like uh, as this, we said and, lots of times sure, on here, not everyone's going to go out there and get onto the world tour and send a paddle like she is. But you know, we can do more paddling, more often, and do the same thing: chilling back after a session with mates in the pub or the beach or whatever. Week. So, um, so just as they're going yeah, in with us, wherever you are Monday in these difficult times, blues, because we recorded this, got, you know, uh, an episode of, yeah, last week actually um, during know, um, COVID nineteen and uh, tough times, but to, um, to inspire yeah, you and just help you look people are starting to get back out to water and things like that. So let's cross um, right over exactly to the same inspiration Fiona Wild in Oregon, USA. We think it's going to work really well. We do appreciate any feedback, and our first episode would be Fiona's. Yeah, and inspiring is the word because you know she's she's got an incredible lifestyle. I mean, if you think about it, she's just so much so fun and happy and easy to chat to. She's really really cool. And um, if you think about her lifestyle, she's just cruising around the world doing what she loves, paddling. I mean, obviously it's hard because we talk about her issues with type one diabetes, and and it's it's not easy to to. Um, I mean, she came third last year in the APP World Tour, which is fantastic, and she's done some incredible accolades which we, we talk a little bit about. But, uh, yeah, she's just a fantastic person, and it's, a, and it's a really great interview. Yeah, I mean, she hasn't been out of the top three since 2016, which is quite amazing, and huge background in water sports generally, you know, winning awards for windsurfing and so on, and even different strains of of SUP, you know, white water and so on. So, uh, so I'm really looking forward to listening to this episode. Um, she sounds absolutely fantastic. Great. Well, here she is, Fiona Wilde. Hi, Fiona. Thanks so much for joining us on the SUP FM podcast. How are you doing over there? Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, it's fun to be here. It's fun to be chatting with you. And uh, it would fu- be fun to be on the water, but uh, we'll just have to make do with this right now. Yeah, what's the deal? Have you managed to get out on the water lately? Is it is it legal in Oregon or not? Yeah, so for a while there, pretty much all access to the Columbia River was closed. And a lot of the access that we um, put into the water here to the river is through state parks. And state parks are still currently closed. However, the city and the port of Hood River have just recently opened up a few more access points. So just this last week, I've been able to get in the water and paddle a bunch, and it has felt so good. So um, I was able to do a few smaller paddles, you know, a couple weeks ago, but now it's like I actually have room and I can go a bit further, and um, I'm loving it. Oh, it's great to get back. I mean, I went myself on Monday because we were allowed in Portugal here, we are allowed to get out on the water again and it's just yeah it's an amazing feeling to get on the water it's really really good so i feel sorry for all those other people around the world who are locked down right now yeah it's uh 
it's you know it's difficult it's um just to when I feel like after taking a bit of time off um when you get back on the water you really appreciate it and realize how much or at least I do how much I kind of took it for granted that every day whenever I wanted to or not uh just go down to the water um and now in a way it's like a kind of forced reflection because it's like okay paddling is something that I used to do just every day and now or for a while there I couldn't so now it's something that I really want to do every day and I'm not going to take it for granted like I did before well, absolutely yeah but obviously um you kind of live in nature all the time I would imagine and as a as a young girl how did that initially start I mean were you did you have an outdoors family were you always outdoors absolutely yeah my family um we always were very tight very small family um I'm an only child and um, actually we don't have, I don't have any other cousins, not any first cousins. So I was always outdoors playing with my parents and aunts and uncles and, uh, grandparents. And so when we wanted to do something, a lot of times we would just look towards the outdoors, whether that be sailing or windsurfing or, um, biking or anything like that. Like our playground is pretty much the outdoors. So for me, um, especially now living in Hood River, uh, it's kind of the same thing. You know, people always ask like, oh, you know, what do you do? And if you ask that question in Hood River, they're not asking you about what you do for school or for jobs or anything like that. They're asking you about what recreation you do. And so, you know, it's kind <laughs> of like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I windsurf, I paddle, I bike, I ski, like we run the mountains, all those things. So it's pretty cool because um, my upbringing has showed me that, you know, or basically my upbringing has taught me that you, the outdoors has a big enough playground for you to have fun, be healthy and really enjoy it. And um, I'm lucky to have be able to choose where I live now and to live in Hood River and have all the access to, you know, the trails and everything else um, when they're open uh, is amazing. Yeah. So what's the main main things that you can do right now um, under lockdown? Are you running or cycling or mm-hmm. what's the deal? Yeah, a bit of both actually. Um, during the main part, of the majority of our, actually pretty much all our trails were closed for about six weeks. Um, and so during that time, I was just running on the road. Um, I got to run a half marathon, a virtual half marathon. Well, I physically ran it, but it was virtually with <laughs> yeah. a bunch of other people. Um, and that was for um, JDRF, which is the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Um, and they create a lot of fundraisers to raise money for research um, to try and hopefully find a cure for type 1 diabetes. And since I have type 1 diabetes and I work a lot with them, it was really cool to do something like that where, okay, I get to challenge myself, I get to push myself, but then it also goes towards a really good cause too. Sure. I'd love to dig then, into that a little bit later, but um, yeah. how can can you tell us in like as great a detail as possible about the very first time you climbed up onto a stand-up paddleboard? <laughs> um, I do you remember it? Actually, I do remember that because I was at a windsurf competition and I was 12. Um, I... <laughs> There was a windsurf competition that was happening in Southern Oregon, and we were there for windsurf wave sailing. And I I had never really been in the waves before. So I was trying to be in the waves, you know, for the first time windsurfing. I was trying to, you know, compete 12 years old, freezing cold water. It was nuking. It was blowing like 40 the whole week. Um, It was a four-day competition, and... 
for the first three days, I couldn't even make it out through the surf. I was just like getting so wound up on the inside, trying to punch through and just getting yarded. Either the waves would knock me back or the, the windsurf break would just get ripped out of my hands because it was so windy. Um, and finally the last day I actually made it out and like everybody on the beach was so excited. They were cheering and it was, that was like <laughs> the biggest accomplishment that I had made it actually out to where most people had been, you know, competing, but whatever. I was 12. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. um, that next day, um, uh, there was one day, I think it was like the Sunday and everybody was just kind of hanging out, hadn't left yet. And the wind completely died. There were some small little waves and they're like, oh yeah, we'll put you, you know, we'll put you in a little, uh, there's a stand-up competition. Some people had some stand-up boards, like put your name down if you want to do it. And I'd never stand up paddle before, but I was like, oh, cool. I'll try it. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> so I remember, uh, they just randomly divided us all up into heats and, because I'd kind of come up late, there was like one spot open in one heat. So they just put me in that heat. Well, I was in a heat with like Robbie Dash and a few other kids that were quite young that actually knew what they were doing. And Did you say Robbie Nash? Funny. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was pretty funny. So um, I had never stood on a board before, but, you know, I tried to paddle out. Same thing kind of with the Windsor thing. I couldn't actually make it out the back because I was on this like 10 foot by 36 massive board. I didn't know anything about it, but, um, you know, I couldn't really catch any waves cause I couldn't get out. So I just decided to turn around, catch the whitewater and do a headstand. And that's what I did. <laughs> so that was going to be my first time stand up battling. Um, but I really but got that's... into it when I was like 14 was when I properly got introduced to the sport. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy. I've heard about many people starting stand-up paddle, but never on a race straight away. That's quite a novel approach. Obviously, yeah, just to shape the future. In the surf, it was kind of funny. But um, yeah, just tried. You never know till you try. Cool. So obviously, your race career pro progressed from that. But let's get into the nuts and bolts of, of professional sup racing. Is there sustainable yeah. money to keep the top 10 on tour? I mean, you've got to have a ton of expenses like flights and accommodations, etc. Yeah, it's it's not cheap um, to fly around the world. And realistically, I think in order to make it viable, you pretty much have to be top three, at least from my experience. Um, with the sponsorship dollars I have, a lot of the other... So the sponsorship dollars I have from the sport, um, you know, thanks to all the companies that are here, you know, Starboard, Black Project, Dexcom, um, everybody that helps me get to the events is immensely appreciated. Um, the big part of being a professional stand-up paddler at this point in the racing scene is making prize money because making prize money and being able to, you know, pocket some money afterwards and save that really makes it sustainable, at least for me. Um, I know that not necessarily everybody is in the same situation, but through stand-up paddling and through stand-up paddle racing, I've been able to make, you know, an incredible life for myself. Um, it takes a bit of, takes a lot of management because like you say, there are tons of expenses in terms of flights, accommodation, um, all that stuff. But if you're smart with the way that you decide to spend the resources that you have, and you train hard and you're able to get good results um, and pick the right events to go to, then it totally is sustainable. It's a lot of work, but you can do it. But at the same time, in order to make that 
kind of work, um, I end up doing a lot of events. And that's why you'll see me competing in a lot of different races. Last year, I competed in 29 events um, throughout the year, which means a lot of traveling, but is also a way that I can I can make this all work. I can make it feasible and I can support myself um, through what I want to be doing. Um, so I can support myself at home as well as when I'm on the road. Wow, 29 events is a lot. I mean, how do you choose which ones to enter? Oh, I pretty much just go for all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2019, can you touch on some of the most fun moments in those events? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I compete on the Stand Up World Tour, um, which is an APP World Tour for Stand Up Paddle Surfing and Stand Up Paddle Racing. Um, so I started the year in Sunset um, in Hawaii, and... Um, I actually won that first world tour event there for Santa Paddle Surfing. So that was an amazing moment for me to kick that off because Santa Paddle Surfing isn't something I grew up with. Um, even if like the first time I was on a Santa Paddle board, you know, was in the surf um, in Southern Oregon, um, it wasn't something that I ever did. I didn't learn how to surf until I was about 15. So, and that's stand up surfing or not. So it's definitely like, for me, that was a huge validation moment of like, whoa, you know, I can actually surf. It's pretty cool. Um, (laughs) But then from there, I actually got to do a couple trips. Um, I went to Santa Cruz Paddle Fest, which is, you know, here in um, the U.S. It's in California, Santa Cruz. Um, And then from there, I got to go on a trip with um, two girls, Alimi Arizafka and Vanya Torres. And um, we kind of created a group last year called the Shaka Ladies. And we hung out together in Hawaii, just had an absolute blast and wanted to make the most of it, wanted to spend some time together. And I had about three and a half weeks before I needed to go race again. So I flew down to Peru and we spent um, the three, the next three weeks between Peru, um, where Vanya lives, and Brazil, where Alini lives. And we were surfing and race training and just having a blast together. That From sounds there, incredible. I... It was so cool because I, you know, just to be able to spend time with other girls who are passionate about, you know, what I love to do and be on the water every day. Like we were pushing each other so well in such a, even though we compete against each other, it wasn't a competitive, you know, rivalry of innocence. It was a true friendship. And those moments are really special. So it was, it was very cool. There's a classic point break in Peru. Did you manage to hit that? I mean, it's like one of the world's best. Yeah, we were we were just south of Lima, so we weren't actually up north. Um, that's up near Chicama and then in Pacasmayo. And I actually have I haven't surfed Chicama, but I've surfed um, Pacasmayo, and I've windsurfed in Pacasmayo. It was a complete blast, but not this trip. We were further south, but it was kind of cool because that you know that trip kind of cemented like having fun, being on the water, sharing that passion you know with my girlfriends. And then from there, I went straight into racing, and I basically went into like nine weeks straight of racing. Um, I competed in the Euro Tour, uh, but before that, I raced Carolina Cup, flew straight to Europe, and then it was seven, excuse me, yeah, eight weeks pretty much um, through Europe, racing almost every weekend. So throughout the summer, that was a big year. Um, that was mm-hmm. from May uh, till about the end of June. So that was a big chunk. Did they have an event in Portugal last year? Because I know they used to have a, a Euro Tour event in Portugal, and I think maybe they've yeah. stopped it. Right? Yeah, they didn't have an event there last year. Um, last year, the events that I did um, were in France, Spain, um, and Greece, and Germany. Okay, and you ended up uh, the world, uh, the Euro Tour champion, right? 
I did. Yeah, that was congratulations. Uh, that was di- thank you very much. It was it's definitely a big highlight. Um, I'm the first American to win the Euro Tour, and um, it was exciting because the, the cool thing about the Euro Tour is I've seen a progression. You know, at the beginning, it was like every single race was pretty much an 18 kilometer flat water race, and I would, you know, I'd be hanging on there, you know, as young, kind of coming into racing, and you know struggling to catch up with Sunny and Olivia and just, you know, hanging on. Um, and then, you know, some of the courses got changed. Um, we got a bit more exciting in terms of conditions that were available and also just, you know, being out there. Um, and also not only that over the Euro tour, the conditions, the races have changed and all that stuff. My ability has improved, but the relationship that we've created on tour, it seriously feels like a family. And so every time you show up to a race, like even amongst, you know, all the girls that are racing against each other, we have such a great camaraderie and the guys too. So, you know, of course, everybody that's there competing wants to win a race, but we're pretty much just as excited for somebody else too, if they have a good day, you know, that's, that's, I think the base of our sport and it's important to keep that in mind. Well, that's wondering, because I was wondering if there's a lot of cattiness and bitchiness in between the girls, but it sounds like, you know, as you say, you're a whole, all a bunch of friends, which is wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's competition. Um, of course, you know, when you're on the race course, there's competition. If somebody's board is between somebody's legs, you're going to get yelled at. Um, and that goes the same for the guys, you know, it doesn't, that part is, that's a part of competition. Um, but no, there's no pettiness. Um, and definitely it's a solid group of women that are competing. Um, everybody puts their time in, everybody works hard, everybody, you know, deserves to be there. And, um, that's just, that's just part of sport. You know, if you have a bad day, you have a bad result, then that's just on you. (laughs) Everybody knows that. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever had a rivalry against anyone else that just carried on? Not particularly. I've been pretty uh, neutral during everything. I mean, my whole thing is that the only result that you can control, the only, um, you know, the only, the only thing that's really important is what you can do and what you can focus on. And that's what I look at. You know, if, if I have a bad day, it's nobody else's fault. Um, you know, I've been in many finals with, um, many people on the surfing side, um, Izzy Gomez and I, we've been in so many different finals together going, um, normally her winning one and then I've won a couple and then, you know, in racing in the U S um, I've been racing a lot with Candace and in Europe, it's been with Sunny and Olivia and all that, but there, there's no rivalries because we are just the athletes that are in the sport right now. And we're just the ones that are racing against each other. And that doesn't need to create any tension because we're both in a sport. Um, I think it's best to actually, you know, kind of celebrate that because the fact that there are so many strong girls in the sport is only making everybody else stronger. Mm, That's a wonderfully refreshing view. Obviously, in addition to winning um, the Euro Tour champion last year, a Euro Tour competition, you came third in the world, which is an incredible result. Do you feel any confusion when it comes to which organization is crowning the world champ? Like, obviously, the APP World Tour is the the majority, but there are lots of other people trying to create world championships like the ISA and the Canoe Federation. Is that, a, is that an issue which, which you guys have a problem with? I think it is. Um, you know, it's difficult as an athlete to figure out where to compete and where to dedicate your time for training. Um, you know, throughout the year, if I last year I started competing in January and I finished competing the end of December. 
Like that was an entire year of competition. Um, and as an athlete, it's very difficult to train and stay mentally fresh for an entire year of traveling back and forth all over the world um, to race your best at every single event. So, you know, granted, if you look at other sports, there are seasons, there are events that people focus on and, you know, look to win. Um, we are fortunate in our sport that we get so many opportunities to compete. Sometimes it becomes a bit overwhelming. Um, and, you know, it is a bit difficult. Like, to be honest, I feel that my results from last year actually reflect a bit higher than having a third place overall for the world tour. Um, but that's just because in those few events, um, I had those results. Um, but the other difficult thing is there were some other racers doing the APP that aren't doing the Euro tour, um, that aren't doing ICF or ISA. So that's the difficulty when you get into the nit and gritty of it is you have these ranking systems, but you don't have everybody doing all the races. So it's difficult to know exactly who is the best, who is on top, who is, you know, the strongest right now, because you can't see everybody at the same race. There are a few races throughout the year that everybody competes in. And those are the ones that you kind of look in. Um, Carolina Cup, you know, typically is one of those. The Gorge Paddle Challenge here is another one of those. Um, Bilbao and Charvoitz in um, Spain and Germany, those are also a few races that people really key into to look and see, okay, who's the strongest um, and, you know, who's on top right now. Because there are only, what, about six or seven events in the APP World Tour, is that right? Yeah, I believe last year we had five races, um, not including Red Bull, and then uh, four surf contests. Mm -hmm. Because... I was following Chris from subracer.com and he tracks about 113 races. So do you think his yeah. kind of um, ranking is much more real as opposed to the APPs? Um, that's a very uh, strong question. I think that there is a lot of validity to looking at the entire sport and putting in um, everybody that's competing. I think the subracer world rankings create a lot more of a community in that sense because everybody is involved. Um, actually, my grandmother is on that list for subracer world rankings, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. She competed <laughs> in the Gorge Pala Challenge, you know, last year, um, where she definitely won't be on a ranking for the APP World Tour, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> if she could be, she would kick a bunch of people's butts. But um, the APP, you know, they're very much focused on creating that strong elite professional mantra, which is really good. But I think both have their loopholes. Um, I think the APP could do a good job by opening up a little bit more, including a few more amateurs into that. And also um, diving into some events that have bigger participation. I think that would be really beneficial to the tour and to the athletes going there. Um, you know, like us, it's fun when you get there and there's a ton of people at an event. So both have their... Um, strong suits because you know APP is claiming a world title and a world champion and a lot it's respected the problem with subracer world rankings would be the the weighting that goes into events sometimes it can be um it's amazing to have a world ranking that has every event because then you don't feel gypped um by not going to a certain event you, you feel like you can get included the difficulty comes with ISA and IACF when they come into it because that kind of throws a wrench in the subracer world rankings because sometimes ISA and ICF are weighted um, quite strong when 
sometimes there's opportunities or athletes don't get opportunities to go to the ISA. Um, luckily ICF allowed everybody to go. So I was able to go last year, but for example, um, last year I couldn't go to ISA because the qualifiers that happened, um, for team USA were during the Euro tour. So there's a lot of overlap. Um, whereas I, I've been part of team USA for the two years prior, but because I wasn't able to, I was already competing in the sport, so I couldn't go to the trials for the sport. So then it, it made my overall sub racer world ranking look poor, like less than it probably was um, because I actually wasn't there. So there's a lot of politics that go into all of this stuff. Um, it's not perfect. It all needs to be, you know, I think everybody could kind of in a way use this time to talk amongst themselves, but then also collectively to try and figure out, okay, you know, here we have a chance to, realign our sport a little bit let's make it so it's most viable for the athletes um and most viable for the people who are involved financially and then most exciting for the fans and the supporters of the sport so we can you know really make this a more inclusive awesome community sport that extends from the novice racers the first timers weekend warriors all the way up to the paid professionals making a living from it Absolutely. Is there any pressure from um, from the from the sponsors to go to any particular race? Because obviously they have a they, sh- they may have a say in that. Yeah, of course. No, um, um, with Starboard, for example, uh, Starboard is my number one supporter. They've been amazing. Um, the Tiki family is just the best family that I could ask for. It's it's oh, awesome. been kind of a dream come true. Yeah, it totally has. Um, but when I talk with them at the beginning of every year, we outline, we work together in outlining the events that I want to go to, the events that they see important, and um, we we bash the two. So pretty much there aren't events that I don't want to go to, <laughs> which is kind of lucky for them. But um, you know, as I've competed a bit more and more, figuring out okay which events suit my styles of racing and surfing, and also um, which events make sense within the calendar year. So with that, um, we write down a list of events that I need to attend, um, and not just races and not just surf contests, but also um, I do different talks and you know go to different of their dealer meetings and stuff like that as well. So we all we all because. Whatever they give to me, I want to make sure I give back to them as well. So it's it's really good because we get to we get to work together on building a schedule. Tell me about visiting Starboard and the, and their founder because are you quite close with him? Yes, yeah, Sven is Sven is amazing. Sven is somebody who you meet Sven and you feel like you feel like you can just go out and do something. You know, he's the kind of person that is like in any difficult situation, you're like hmm, hmm okay, uh, yep, we can do that. Like barely doesn't even think you know, that there was not an option to go do it. So when I get, I've been able to head to the factory, um, starboard headquarters in Bangkok, Thailand a few times. And every time I've been there, you know, it moves at very fast pace. There's a lot of things going on, but it's been an amazing opportunity. The first time I was there, I actually got to shape my own board. Um, I was only there for two and a half days because yeah, yeah, it was super cool. I was only there for two and a half days because I was, uh, there in between events. Um, and so we had a ton of boards to test. And um, in the midst of it all, I found this blank. It was like a, a 7-4, you know, 7-4 by 24. And I had been wanting to go to Indonesia for a long time. So I you know, like found this blank. It was just kind of sitting there. And so I came up to Sven and I was like, hey, Sven, can I, um, can I reshape this thing? 
And he was like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I kind of want to make like a 7-0 by 22 and three quarters. And he was like, huh? Okay. And so I was like, yeah, and I want a round pin on it. And he brought me to a shaping bay and said, okay, here you go. <laughs> you can have fun. <laughs> so in between testing boards is I'd like head out to the lake. We'd test a bunch of boards and I'd come back and, you know, keep working on shaping it. It was amazing. Within, I mean, I left there two and a half days later with my new board that I was going to take the Indo later that year. Like it was awesome. just, um, it was just so cool because in the factory I got to, you know, physically build something and the team it was just so much fun. They were excited to see that I was working on a board and then, um, and how did it ride? Oh my goodness. How did the board Amazing. ride an Indo? That was the coolest thing. Um, unfortunately the trip that I had planned for, it was supposed to be about six weeks after that. Um, I couldn't go. So I was all bummed because I was like, I just made this board for this trip and I, I couldn't go. But, um, the following year I got to go and I got into some of the best surf I've ever been in and the board rode amazing. <laughs> it was like, it was so cool. It, I mean, maybe it was just because, you know, I made it and it felt good, but, um, you know, it was just, it was what I wanted for those kinds of waves. You know, there was hollow, clean, it was super low volume. So I needed to have clean, glassy surf. And luckily I had a bunch of it. I don't know how you can even paddle a board that small, but that, you know, I'm six, <laughs> four, so I'm really big, but <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. It might, but, uh, um, it might be a great sharp board for you. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and then that's super cool. So that's for, you know, inside the sport. And then I have sponsors that um, help me with, um, well, not only all the diabetes products that I need, um, but then also we do a lot of outreach events together. I do, like I mentioned earlier, JDRF and, and then Dexcom. Um, we do a bunch of events and, you know, basically healthy awareness and talking about type 1 diabetes, managing, living and thriving with type 1 diabetes. And so with them, um, we organize events that are not just, you know, not just videos and podcasts and stuff like that, but physical events that I go to and um, talk to others that have type 1 as well. Um, obviously, additionally, you managed to excel in an endurance sport whilst having type 1 diabetes. So what kind of preparation and awareness does it take to manage the whole condition? It takes... Um, it takes management, like you just said, you know, it takes management and awareness of my body and prior preparation, to be completely honest. Um, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease where my pancreas doesn't produce insulin. And in order for, you know, my body to act normally, whenever I eat anything that has any kind of sugar or carbohydrates, um, you need insulin. Because when you eat sugar and carbohydrates, that backs up in your blood, gets broken down into sugars and stored in your blood, and insulin would act as the key to basically unlock a door from your bloodstream, um, from your veins and all that that has your blood, and let the sugars enter your muscles. So if you don't have insulin, then all the sugar that you're eating, consuming, just sits in your blood and you can't actually process it. And your muscles don't get any food, so you feel extremely weak. So I take insulin, um, I inject insulin um, somewhere between five and ten times a day, depending on my blood sugar levels. So I'm constantly, you know, poking myself with uh, little needles to inject. And I wear a device on my stomach called Dexcom. Um, it's a continuous glucose monitor, which means that it um, 
continuously checks my blood sugar for me automatically because it connects to an app on my phone. And every five minutes, a little dot shows up on my graph that I have telling me where my blood sugar is. And it'll also project the direction that I'm going. So say if I'm going up, uh, my blood sugar will, there'll be an arrow going up on the Dexcom app showing me, hey, blood sugar is going up. You should probably do something about this. Um, or, hey, I'm going down or I'm going down quickly. I should eat something to stop this. Uh, so ironically, the whole flatten the curve thing that we're talking about with coronavirus, I've been doing that for a while now because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's, um, it's all about flattening the curve with diabetes. But um, yeah. So now when you're racing, can you monitor that as well when you're... When you, yeah, sorry, you're yeah. just about to go into competition, yeah. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, so when I'm on my when I'm on my race board, I wear a hydration pack pretty much every time I'm on my race board. And that hydration pack has my phone, has some water, and also has few chumps, um, just some sort of quick-acting sugar that I can eat. But I wear an Apple Watch, and the Apple Watch talks to my iPhone, and I have the Dexcom app on my watch as well. So while I'm racing, I can actually look down, see what my blood sugar is at and be like, yep, okay, I'm good. I can keep paddling, um, just keep going. Or, oh, I'm starting to go down. I need to eat something. So I'm constantly monitoring, okay, where's my blood sugar at? And trying to adjust it even while I'm racing. Because if my blood sugar is not in range, I'm not going to feel well and I'm not going to race well at all. And it's pretty dangerous as well. I mean, you could go into a coma, surely. Um, you won't be able to go into a coma and just, you know, shut off. I mean, I don't want to say it exactly like that, um, but realistically, yeah, you, you won't be it, able to. Yeah. If you didn't manage it, absolutely. Um, a, a lot of times it happens um, with newly diagnosed people that don't even know they have diabetes um, because you have symptoms that don't feel right, don't feel right. And unfortunately, sometimes diabetes can go undiagnosed for a while. Um, and that is when a lot of complications, you know, become... Um, present um, and potentially very dangerous. Luckily, for anybody that has type 1 diabetes, exercise is like the million dollar drug. Um, just going outside, you know, if I'm not if I'm not feeling super great, even if you know I I pretty much exercise every day. But even if my blood sugar is not cooperating, not feeling super great, just a walk around the block. Um, you know, just go for a walk around the block with my dog, and I feel so much better. And a lot of times my blood sugar kind of steadies itself out too. So for anybody that has type one, um, you know, and is dealing with struggling with blood sugars up and down, um, either insulin resistant or, um, you know, whatever, just going out and moving for a little bit, you don't have to do any crazy training, just, you know, move a bit. It always helps. And, and you said, how, how did you actually find out that you had it? So I, um, I discovered that I had type 1 diabetes on my graduation day from high school when I was 18. Um, I had been doing online high school um, basically freshman or sorry sophomore, junior and senior year. So the last three years of high school I did online. Um, I had also signed my contract with Starboard at the beginning of that year. So this is my first year you know being a professional stand-up paddler, super excited, ready to go. Um, I competed in the Carolina cup that year. That was my first big race of the year. And I was doing awesome. I was in second place to Annabelle Anderson and, you know, it looked like I was going to get second and in about a mile and a half from the finish, I just completely bonked. I lost it. I got weak. I couldn't paddle anymore. Um, I crawled in kind of in sixth place and I chalked it up to experience. You know, I was like, I'm young. This is my first, you know, big international race. Like, 
as with a team behind me, like, you know, I just need more experience. So I came home and I kept training um, and I didn't get any stronger. I was actually getting weaker. I was um, losing quite a lot of weight. I was exhausted, um, very dehydrated, but constantly having to drink water. Um, and then I got an infection and I went to the doctors and they gave me some antibiotics for an infection and said, you know, it'll go away. Like, you know, it didn't go away. I went back. They gave me a second round. And that time it did nothing. The infection just continued and it was, you know, kind of painful. Um, and then I went back to the doctor a third time. This is about a month after um, the Carolina Cup. And it was the day that I had finished high school because I, since everything was online, there was nothing else that I had to do. It was like all my work was turned in. I finished it all that morning, was feeling amazing, kind of like, you know, high on a cloud. <laughs> and um, went to the doctor that afternoon and explained everything that I had been feeling. And my doctor asked if anybody had checked my blood sugar. I was like, no, what's that? Why? And so my doctor pricked my finger right then and there. And my blood sugar was at 586 milligrams per deciliter. And I was like, great. What's that out of a thousand? And he was like, no, high is like 110. So pretty much right then and there, I, you know, I had, um, was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And of course it was a huge shock to me. I didn't know anything about diabetes to my family. They're like, what? Um, did you think, Oh my God, my career is over in a way? Yeah. Because I, you know, being a professional athlete, your body is extremely important. And here I have, you know, a body that can do really cool things, but a part of it is broken. So trying to get that through my head, you know, in a span of a few minutes after getting told you have an autoimmune disease, um, wasn't necessarily the most, um, light feeling I could say. Uh, (laughs) But the really cool thing was that, yeah, the really cool thing was the the doctor, my doctor, who's still my doctor now here in Hood River, um, and also I got to speak with a diabetic educator. And all this happened within like two and a half days since my doctor told me I was diagnosed. They got me started on insulin, taught me how to use, you know, use insulin, what it does, how to eat sugar if my blood sugar goes low, uh, how to check my blood sugar, all these things that were important. And so we had a follow-up with my doctor two days later. And so, you know, at that point, my blood sugar is starting to come back down into range. I didn't get go to the hospital. Um, a lot of people are admitted to the hospital when they get diagnosed. And for whatever reason, I wasn't. Um, so I'm sitting there with my doctor. And I was like, look, you know, I was supposed to go to Europe on Tuesday. This is on um, Saturday, actually. He saw us on Saturday. It's like, look, I'm supposed to go to Europe on Tuesday because I'm supposed to race in my first Euro tour, um, and I'd never been to Europe to race before. So I was really excited about it, and I was like, but if this is a bad idea, tell me, I won't go. If it's not good for my health, I'm not going to go. And my doctor just sat back and was like, that's not my decision to make. You know how your body works, and you can talk to your family about that. And I was like smiling sitting there, and I turned to my dad, and I was like, okay, we're going to Europe. Can you come with me? (laughs) And so we went to Europe for like four days later. Um, And it was amazing. It was, it was very cool of my parents to just support me in that decision to go. Um, My dad came with me on the trip and he was an immense help. Uh, My mom packed so many snacks for me for the flight over there. I think, I think the, the the food bag was bigger than uh, my carry on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's so but funny. Coming to grips with the daily injections just you know almost overnight must have been quite challenging. Um, not really. 
for me, it wasn't because when you're put in a situation where, okay, this is something you need to do. Otherwise you're going to feel like absolute crap and you need this to survive. It's not difficult to come to grips with, you know, it's just a very small needle. Um, it's four millimeters long. So it's very small. Sometimes it hurts. A lot of time it doesn't, but this keeps me alive. This keeps me healthy and I can do that. Well, well done. It's an amazing thing to have to, to deal with. And obviously you're dealing with it incredibly well and also inspiring people who have it to, to go out and, and, and get fit, right? Well, thank you. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, it's important to chat with other people. Um, you know, I actually get inspired by just having these conversations and talking with others too, because, um, you know, everybody has little tips and tricks for managing diabetes because everybody's experience is different. So the more people you talk to, the more you learn and it only helps yourself. It definitely helps me. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, totally different subjects. I caught something online okay. where you were subsurfing in the in the city wave at the Boot, the Boot Festival in Germany. Yeah. But obviously, wave, I mean, this is not a, a, a wave pool in, tr- in the traditional sense, but um, proper wave pools are popping up like flies. Do you reckon the yeah. surfers will let us sup them? And have you ever ever subsurfed a wave pool? Um, beyond city wave, um, I've been able to surf city wave quite a few times now. It's a complete blast. Um, what Nick is mentioning here is the Dusseldorf Boot Show, um, which is one of the largest boat shows in the entire world. They have an entire outdoor water sports um, arena, and they set up an indoor wave pool for competition for both surfing, stand-up surfing, um, and run competitions throughout the entire show. It's a complete blast. It's so different, surfing a wave indoors, um, and especially a wave like that that acts um, like a river wave. It's uh, modeled after the Munich Ice Box. So it would be like if you were surfing in a river. So it's very different because the water is actually pushing back up and over the wave um, rather than a traditional wave that's breaking from top to bottom. So all your turning is completely different. So when you first get on the wave, you're normally just flushed right out of the back. But it's really fun. Um, in terms of other wave pools, I actually haven't had an opportunity to surf any others. I would love to. I know that... Uh, there are people that have chances to surf um, and stand up surf Kelly Slater's wave pool, which has been super mm-hmm. cool. Um, I haven't been down there. <laughs> I would love to at some <laughs> point. That would be amazing. <laughs> but um, I think it's cool. There's one in, in Bristol as well that they've just a wave garden that they've opened up in Bristol in, in the UK. Um, yeah. But I've never seen anybody stand up paddling in that pool yet. And I'm wondering if it's, uh, if it's possible. I think it's definitely possible. You just have to go mm-hmm. and do it. <laughs> yeah, I think Kyle Lenny did. Um, he went to go and surf in in the Wave Garden Research and Development Pool in in Spain. Um, you know, on on a stand up paddle, which uh, which would be cool. But it it sounds like it, it could help competitions, and you could have incredible sub surfing competitions in wave pools. Yeah, I think it would be fun. I think that actually even more so than competitions, I think it would just be really good training because you get the opportunity to work on maneuvers and tricks that. You know, you just don't have as many opportunities in the ocean. But I think the coolest part about surfing is, you know, being able to read the water, read the waves. um, And, you know, ocean knowledge is a huge aspect of surfing and being in the water. And um, it's important to not take that away. But the wave pools, in my opinion, are awesome because people who wouldn't get the chance to be in the ocean get to, you know, learn how to surf. And um, that's epic 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, just thinking, talking about subsurfing and, and subracing and everything, if you could categorize um, or um, just rank your favorite ways to paddle a, a stand-up paddleboard, what, do you, what is it first? Is it stand-up surfing? Is mm. it, do you ever do any yoga? Is it downwinding? What's the, what's the best oh, for you? Yoga is not too high on my list. <laughs> I, I should do a lot more yoga, but um, no, I, I kind of don't know if I have enough patience for it. I would love to do more yoga. I think that would actually help me a lot. But um, no, if I can reach my toes, it's a good day. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> beyond that, um, no, I, I just love being on the water, out on a board. You know, when I'm home here in Hood River, my absolute favorite thing is to go downwinding. Um, I just love that. We have amazing downwind conditions. And um, as much, you know, I've been really getting into foiling and having a bunch of fun with foiling, but still my favorite thing is just go downwinding on my race board. I absolutely love it. Um, and then if I'm anywhere near the ocean, um, I'm going to be stand-up paddle surfing. So I think that's kind of where the divide comes in because I live about three hours from the ocean. So it's not that every day I get to just go out and go surf. So when I'm here in Hood River, you know, I'm focused on my race board, foiling, windsurfing, having fun like that. If I'm at any spot that is, you know, near some surf, then yeah, I'll be pretty much 100% focused on getting the surf. What about uh, like multi-day stand-up paddle expeditions and things like that? I mean, no, I'm not talking about something like the Yukon 1000, but just, you know, getting just off for, for a camp and yeah, just for fun. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Um, to be honest, I haven't done um, any multi-day camp trips from stand-up paddling. I would really like to do that. I think it'd be very cool. But what I have done is I've done a bunch of surf trips, you know, that are a bunch of days, not for competition. Um, and just, you know, going exploring different spots, checking out, you know, different waves all over the coast. And, um, that is a blast. You know, you don't know what you're going to come into. Um, it's fun to go to different countries, see different cultures, eat different food. And, you know, that brings in the big adventure side to it. And, I love that. And, you know, here in Hadur, um, I do a lot of that, but actually a lot of that adventure happens outside of the water. Here it happens um, in the mountains and in the hills, trails and biking and running and, um, and on sailboats too. We do a lot um, sailing around here, which is pretty darn fun. Awesome. Yeah. So what's your goal in SUP for 2020? I mean, obviously we've had a bit of a crazy year so far. So with the virus yeah. and everything. Um, so have, have you got any goals? Do you know when you're going to be, when you're going to start racing or, and what's your idea of how 2020 is going to shape up? Um, I think we're all wondering <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a difficult honest. question, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, the Euro Tour just released a um, new schedule um, starting, the first race that I would be able to do would be end of August. Um, you know, but that requires international travel from the United States to Europe. Um, and because I have type one diabetes, I need to be really careful about, you know, just exposure and all that because I'm more susceptible to any kind of illness. Um, so to be completely honest, um, I'm mentally still kind of in a waiting game. You know, I have, I'm hoping the Gorge Paddle Challenge can go ahead, which is the big event here. I don't know how many people will be able to come from different places, but it would be cool even if it's not, you know, the big, you know, standard event that we have, but to have it more as like a local celebration. Um, that would be incredible because it's the 10th year um, of the event. And unfortunately, Steve Gates, who pretty much started stand-up paddling here, he passed away last fall. So it could be a very very cool event, you know, to honor him. But, um, 
as he would say, the most important thing is everybody's health. So we'll have to take that into consideration. And then going forward, you know, I think, uh, I don't think it's unrealistic to be a bit more on the patient side and say, you know what, if, you know, I think we will be racing this year, but it might be even later than a lot of us expected. So that's just kind of the mindset that I'm in. So in the meantime, I've been bulking up on classes um, at university. I'm studying geography and geospatial science, and I've been able to just um, power ahead and and work on a lot of classes right now. Well, that's awesome. So, well, you know, good luck with all your classes and, and good luck with your training down in Hood River. And thanks so Thank much you. for chatting to us. It was really awesome to to get to know you a little bit. Thank you. I really appreciate the time and it is definitely fun to chat. And, you know, hopefully sometime soon we'll be able to get on the water and um, share a session together. That'd be really cool. That'd be awesome. Looking forward to that. I promise you I'll let you know if we ever get to go paddling with Fiona Wild because there is an event scheduled for, I think it's October in Cascais in Portugal. So um, I definitely may get up there after having chatted to Tristan Boxford from the APP a few days ago and obviously Fiona Wild and April Zilg. And it'd be nice to put um, faces to names and names to faces and, you know, just meet them in real life. Thanks so much for your support and for listening. We really do appreciate it because without you, we would not have anything here. So thanks a lot. And we look forward to seeing you and share this on social media if you can, or just send an email to a mate or just bang a WhatsApp over to a friend and say, hey man, listen to this. We love it. So thanks so much. And check you on subfm.show. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to SUPFM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.